0: We've completed our introduction to hermeneutics, and today we will focus in on the principles, and we will be right in the heart of what hermeneutics is all about. So this lecture and the next one will be probably the main things that we will deal with when it comes to hermeneutics. These will be the principles themselves. Towards the end of the course, the last several weeks, we will return to hermeneutics, and we will deal with other issues that are also important, but not as significant as the actual principles themselves. We'll deal with the history, for example, which is good to have for background. We'll look at other approaches in contrast to the grammatical, historical, contextual, Approach. So we'll deal with all of those issues. We'll deal with special hermeneutics. You won't need that immediately. So we'll hold all of those for the end of the course, the last several sessions or few sessions. But after today and probably half of next week, we will look at these principles and we're only going to look at four today. These are the essential principles in this science and art of interpretation. So that'll be our focus today. In fact, we'll spend probably at least a whole hour on the very first principle because it's kind of the foundational one. It's a principle that you will apply every time you go to the Scriptures. Now, I should have continued in my little introduction here. We'll take a break from the principles of hermeneutics not this week, but probably in the middle of next week, and get you right into applying the principles. We call that exegesis, or as the course title, Bible Study Methods. How do you actually apply these hermeneutical principles to the biblical text themselves? And I'll introduce you to a process, of, an exegetical process, that has worked for Bible students and Bible teachers. So we're looking at the science and art of interpretation. And I'm going to give you six essential principles. These are foundational. These are fundamental. These are utilized virtually every time you get into the biblical text. The others are not so important, but have come about mainly as a result of historical situations and for clarity and in order to give you a complete balance of hermeneutics. So, the first one that we will be looking at is the linguistic principle. Obviously, linguistics deals with what? Language. So, this principle, stated very simply, is you determine meaning by the conventions of language. The conventions of language determine meaning. So, this principle deals with... Everything related to language. So under it, you could add several sub-principles, if you will. Every issue that deals with language would fall under what we would describe as a linguistic principle. And let me just outline a few of them for you, some of these issues that we will deal with. So you determine meaning by the conventions of language. Now... As I've said, this is a extremely important principle. And let me give you some reasons for it. We talked about in our introduction, inspiration. And one of the things that we detailed when we talked about inspiration is verbal inspiration. And when we speak of verbal inspiration, we're talking about communication to original authors And that communication was written down in language. So just the nature of how we approach Scripture in terms of its inspiration tells us that language, from God's perspective, must be very important. Secondly, in the book of Genesis, we learn very early when man was created, he was created in the image of God. Part of the image of God includes God building into man the ability to communicate. And when God built into human beings that ability to communicate, he puts something of himself, obviously in a limited and a finite level, in man. And that part of the image of God is the ability to communicate. Now, this is vastly different from all of the other creatures, uh, or animal creatures at least. Now you might say animals in some way communicate, but not in a rational way, and animals do not utilize language. God is the giver of language from the very beginning. In fact, God communicates the emphasis of the Bible as the Word. Jesus Christ as the Word. That's ideas, that's communication, that's intelligence. So what God has built into man in terms of the ability to communicate, He has built into man the ability to communicate through language. So Adam and Eve were created with the innate ability to be able to communicate thoughts in their minds to be able to communicate to other human beings. What was the first thing that, first task that was given to Adam? Name the animals. What is language all about? Language is the ability to communicate concepts and to categorize things. So the first thing that Adam was given was the task of building groups of categories in which we could describe and understand the animals that God had created. That's part of language. In fact, that's what nouns are all about. They're categories. So God built language... And even before Adam, how does God create? What does it say in Genesis 1-3, at the very beginning? He spoke. And God said, he spoke, exactly. And God said, let there be light. There was light. Everything in the universe that he created, he created by speaking things into existence. That's language. So language comes from God. God implanted in mankind the ability to communicate, and it's through language. So language is important, not because of anything inherent in man, but because this is what God has built into us. And it's very important, thirdly, God communicates through language. That's how he communicates his ideas that are in his mind. His thoughts are communicated to you and I through language. Now, from the very beginning, because of sin, man has perverted language. And not only that, but God has judged mankind in the whole area of language at the Tower of Babel. So, language is intimately related to God, and language is the vehicle through which God communicates. So, thirdly, God communicates with language. So, that's why language is important. That's why we devote ourselves to understanding the biblical text. That's why it's important to look at the language that God is communicating with in order to get the ideas that God is conveying through that language. So the better we understand language and the better we analyze the biblical text in terms of sentences, grammar, all of these issues of language, the better we understand the text. Fourthly, this is the goal of exegesis, is to understand and to open up and to be able to discern that communication. We are probing the mind of God through the vehicle that he has provided, language. And he has chosen to communicate in sentences, in paragraphs, through nouns, through categories, through actions, verbs. This is the means that God has built. To communicate. So the linguistic principle deals with all of the issue of language. All of the issues of language. And we've already mentioned that when it comes to the Bible, and we're talking about language, we're talking about a Hebrew language. And God was pleased to communicate, predominantly in the Old Testament, through the Hebrew language that more than likely God built into probably the first man and the first woman. And like I said, language is perverted. Language does have deficiencies, but that's not because of God. That's because of sin and because of man. So Hebrew is a consonantal language. Generally three consonants make up at least the roots of all nouns and all verbs. And here's some examples. This is halal, to praise. Hallelujah. Remember? Halal, a Hebrew word. And it's just a very simple three-consonant verb. Or yada, to know, which we'll spend a lot of time dealing with. Those are just examples of what Hebrew looks like and particular Hebrew words. And this language in the Old Testament was primarily the language of God's people. After Babel, other languages became more prominent than Hebrew. And other languages dominated the ancient world. So it was mainly the the language of God's people. Now, the Bible, there are some passages, for example, Daniel 2, verses 4 through chapter 7, verse 28, which are in Aramaic. Aramaic was one of those dominant languages that uh, was spoken throughout, the, the world, at least from about the middle of the 1500 B.C. to about 1200 B.C., Aramaic was spoken. And part of the reason that uh, Daniel and some other portions in Ezra, those are the main two areas where Aramaic occurs in the Old Testament. And the reason they occur there is because of the culture of that time and the dominant language where those books were were penned. So there are some passages that are in Aramaic. It's very similar to Hebrew, using the same characters, but it has its own distinctions. It's a different language. And, obviously, we have the Greek language, which the New Testament was written in. And Greek is an ancient language that has a history of over 3,000 years. So there are different periods of... The language, the language changes over time. Just like English, we don't speak King James English anymore, if you will. So language changes, so also Greek. There's what's called the Classical Period. You've heard of the Classical writers. They write in Classical Greek, slightly different from what is called Koine or Common Greek. The New Testament is in that Koine period, described as the common greek period after that there's a byzantine period where the language continued to change and you might even say evolve and fourthly today greek is still spoken in greece and areas some areas in, in europe that would be the modern greek so just as english changes over time all languages change so also greek and because it has a long history it has had uh, different periods So, the New Testament is written in a particular Greek, koine. That's why when some scholars refer to the the writing of Luke as more classical than the writing of Paul, that's the distinction they're making. In other words, Luke probably was a classical scholar, and it's reflected in the way that it communicates and writes. And I said a 3,000 year history from about 1,000 B.C. to the present. Now, this course will deal with the English translation only because at this stage, and for most people that don't have Greek or Hebrew, the English language is the best that we can do. And it's a good introductory course. The principles are the same in hermeneutics. The process that I'll give you is the same, but if you take Greek and Hebrew, you use those tools as well and you have access to other things as well. So the linguistic principle deals with all the issues of language. It deals with the issue of the text. And again, this requires an understanding of the original languages. But I want to give you a real brief exposure to this whole area, just so you understand when you hear a Bible teacher refer to Some manuscripts don't have this phrase. They might use something like that. They might say something like that, or they might refer to a manuscript that has a different reading. Uh, What's going on there? Well, the issue of the text, let me give you a little background, just enough so that you know what's going on, so that when you're studying, and sometimes your, your study Bibles as well, will have footnotes, and it'll say the same thing. Some ancient manuscripts include this, or say this, or substitute this well, what's all that going on? Well, in order for you to understand in your, even English, it'll help you understand what the translators are giving you that, that information. So let me give you just a little exposure and we'll come back and I'll give you a little more. But first of all, now what do I mean by the text? We're talking about uh, reconstructing the original text. There's a science that's called Textual criticism. Don't be too fearful of that. Textual criticism is a science of determining the original text, reconstructing the original text. Now, textual criticism is a broad science. And what I mean by that, it's not just simply dealing with reconstructing the biblical text, but it's broader than that. The science of textual criticism develops sound principles to reconstruct any ancient text. And biblical textual criticism uses those same principles in reconstructing the biblical text. So if you're studying the classics, you're studying Aristotle, Plato, or any of those ancient writers, you're dealing with the results, or if you're a scholar in that area, then you're probably doing textual criticism to reconstruct the original writings of Aristotle, Plato, etc. We don't have any of the original writings of any of the classical writers. And neither do we have any of the original documents of the Bible. We don't have the original writings of Paul. We don't have the original writings, certainly, of Moses or Isaiah or, or n- name any writer. They have vanished And probably the Holy Spirit saw fit that they would not survive. Otherwise, we would probably worship those documents. So, what we are dealing with in the 21st century is a reconstruction of... And I'll try to demonstrate through this discussion. I'll give you a little bit more here on textual criticism. We'll talk a little bit more later as well, so you'll understand what it involves... We have a reconstruction of the biblical text, and I would say to a high degree of confidence. In fact, up front, I'd like to mention that we have such a degree of confidence, magnitudes greater than the confidence than any of the classical works. In other words, we have confidence of what we have is far superior to any of the classical writers by magnitudes, and I'll try to demonstrate that. Here's an example of some scrolls. Now, these are a photograph of a Dead Sea Scroll. The Dead Sea Scrolls were extremely important in helping us to confirm, actually more so than to give us new material, but it confirmed to us, it gave us confidence that we have a very good representation of the Old Testament. And what the Dead Sea Scrolls did was verify the accuracy of the text that we have. Now, certainly there were some refinements to the text that were a result of study of the manuscripts that were found at the Dead Sea. These were discovered in 1947, so they'd been studied for the last several years here, over 50 years now, over 60, I guess. The Dead Sea Scrolls, they were copies Again, we don't have original documents. These were copies in many portions of the Old Testament, sometimes complete books, and sometimes more than one scroll of the same book, showed us that what we had, and before that, I think the earliest manuscripts that we had of the Old Testament were copies that dated back to about 900 A.D. So now we have copies that date before Christ. The Dead Sea Scrolls were copied most of them before uh, the time of Christ, at least a hundred years, some of them a hundred and more. some of them more than that. Uh, There's some that are dated to the first century as well. But these push back copies that we have available of Old Testament books. So textual criticism utilizes principles of reconstructing any text, and when we deal with biblical text, we're talking about reconstructing books of the Old and New Testament. So it was a major breakthrough. The dates of the documents found in these caves overlooking the Dead Sea date from within 200 B.C. to 100 A.D., so including first century writings. A fourth of the manuscripts were of the Old Testament books or fragments of books, And there was other writings as well. Ten or more copies of Isaiah, Deuteronomy, Minor Prophets, and Psalms. So you have multiple copies. Sometimes there are just fragments, like uh, this piece here, shown in the photograph. Just a fragment, and that's all. But it's at least something that uh, might be of value to that particular portion of Scripture that is represented there. These are uh, sketches uh, just to show you what different uh, manuscripts. These are New Testament documents here. Two of the most important manuscripts that we have of the New Testament. I was discussing the Old Testament with the Dead Sea there. Sinaiticus. Uh, notice a distinct style from this major document, Vaticanus. Both of these are complete versions of the New Testament. Different styles because you have different scribes. We didn't have Xerox copiers back then. Didn't have printers. So everything had to be hand copied. And that's what these manuscripts are, are hand copies. So you have different styles represented. Two of the most important ones because they are complete documents. This is a complete, almost a complete sheet of Sinaiticus. So this is four columns on one piece of parchment. Certainly not as big as that on the screen there, but it gives you an idea of what the scholars have to deal with. Notice there's no breaks. In other words, it's just continuous, uh, each line. Now here's an end of a sentence maybe, and then you have another one over here. But notice there's no breaks between the words. That's where some of the problems come in is when you copy, the copier sometimes is is not following exactly what we have here. This is a photograph. I took this photograph of Vaticanus. Uh, the reason it's kind of, uh, orange there is because it was under, uh, it was in a sealed container with thick plexiglass and that was kind of the color that came out. And I was not able, it wouldn't permit you to use a flash. So that was the best I could do with a camera I had. But this is in the Vatican. So several years ago when I visited there, in fact, this was in 1977. I was back in 2005, I think, and it was no longer on display. And I asked you know, if it was available, and they said no, it's it's been locked up for many years, so unavailable to to observe, and that's the problem with a lot of these manuscripts is you can't see them; they're under lock and key. But that's an actual page that was open. You can see the the the, the center here. There's another page on that side. So this is a quite a quite a large document. It's probably about about this wide in the case, two sheets. But that's what the textual critic has available. He will compare that copy with other copies of the same passage that he is dealing with. Uh, This is what's called a lectionary. That's the L there. And again, notice the distinct style. And this is another manuscript. They call it S. Very different from these two. And that's why I show those. Just to show that that's what the textual critic uses. There are three main things that they take into account in evaluating the value of each manuscript or documents. The age of the document is very important. Secondly, the quality of the document. And that can, evaluating the quality can take different forms. It may be very incomplete for one, so that lessens its value. Or it may be by a scribe that seems to be very careless. So that makes it less valuable. And the third element is the number of copies within a certain family. So you take into account these issues. Those are the main criteria along with a lot of other principles that are utilized. This slide... I took this out of Steve Collins' book on uh, apologetics, at least the data out of of it. And this is just a brief comparison to give you a feel to compare the, the biblical text with other ancient texts. And I've selected three that you probably have heard about, Herodotus, Plato, and Aristotle. Collins in his book has a a longer list of other ancient documents. But these are pretty representative and pretty typical of that longer list. So if you are a classical student, or if you envision being one, or if you know of someone that studies the classics, and most major universities will have a department of the classics where you might study these writings... Herodotus is believed to have written his works somewhere between 480 to 406 B.C. And the earliest copies of Herodotus that we have available date to 900 A.D. So there's a span of about 1,300 years from the original writing of Herodotus to the, the copy that we have. 1,300 years, and we only have about eight of them. In fact, uh, that's the amount that's available, unless more have been discovered since the writing of that book. Similarly with Plato, Plato writing between 427 and 347 B.C., again, the earliest copy that we have of Plato's writings is about 900 A.D., 1,200-year span. So a lot of copying took place between the writing of these classics and the copies that we have available to evaluate. And again, we only have about seven copies of some of the writings of of Plato. Similarly, similar numbers with Aristotle. And like I said, these are representative of all of the classics. Aristotle writing about 384 to 322 The earliest we have is about 1100 A.D., 1400 years, and only like five copies. So, if anyone would argue that uh, the Bible could not be trusted because uh, we don't have the original writings of the writers of Scripture, then that person would have to say that all of the universities that teach the Classics would have to d- dismantle all of those departments. No one's willing to do that. And all of the critics would accept the classics even on this, what we would, com- in comparison, a very meager documentary evidence in comparison to the New Testament. The New Testament was written between 44, somewhere in there, to about 95. 44 is about the date of Matthew I think Matthew may have been the first book that was written. James was written in about the same time frame, somewhere about 44. So either Matthew or James is the first. The last one is 95. So over this very short period of time, about 50 years, the whole New Testament was written. Book of Revelation being the last in 95. Uh, So dating to about uh, just within... 30 years of the last book, we have fragments of the New Testament. Not 1,300 years, we just have decades. We have copies, at least of fragments. And we have an entire New Testament at about 400 A.D., so that's just a little over 300 years instead of 1,300 years. So we have extremely good documentary evidence for the New Testament. Uh, magnitudes better than all of the classics. So anyone that would argue against that, you can just point this out to them. And then within decades, uh, about 300 years, we have many thousands of documents. So uh, very extensive evidence available to reconstruct the New Testament. So, if scholars feel confident that they can reconstruct the writing of Herodotus, Plato, Aristotle, and all of the classics with only a few copies, we have thousands in order to do the same. And the more copies you have, the more confidence that you can that you will have that you have reconstructed the New Testament text. And not only confidence, but with great precision. And also given the the idea that those that copied had a very high degree of respect for what they were copying. They uh, took pains to make sure that they were accurate, even though there are variants. The New Testament documents again. This is another chart to give you an idea how many documents we have. The autographs, that's the title that we give to the originals. They're called the autographs, between 44 and 95, again. Within 100 AD, so within decades of the writing, we have many fragments. From about 200 to 500, we have many complete documents of the New Testament. These are in addition to these fragments. And then uh, we have copies that date to about a 1,000. We have thousands of manuscripts in addition to these many complete documents and in addition to these fragments. Thus, today we have over 5,000 manuscripts available to make comparisons and to utilize the principles of textual criticism to reconstruct the text. that makes sense? Now, these uh, manuscripts, like I said, they vary in age, they vary in quality, and they vary in quantity, in terms of specific groups. Uh, all the same, you would expect. In fact, if you've copied uh, anything yourself, maybe you've copied a passage out of a book or copied notes or whatever, you know the tendency that you will have in copying. And even if you take pains, oftentimes you will make a mistake. And and you know, I experienced that myself. So you can imagine that you would expect very. Vari- they're called variants. Something that varies from another text or a large number of texts is called a variant. And there's a large number of them. The estimate is about from 150 to about 200,000 variants in the New Testament. And similarly, there are some in the Old Testament as well. But we'll talk about New Testament uh, just to give you the idea here. That sounds like a large number. In reality... 98% of those 200 max, 200 max, 200,000 max variants are of insignificant impact. A lot of them are things that we commonly do. You know, we might have a word. I do this a lot. The word believe, I might spell that. Have you ever done this? Spell it that way. It's pretty clear, you can see immediately, that I've just inverted these two letters. So, 98% of the variants that we have are of this nature. Not just inversions, but insignificant like this, where it's very clear that this is just a misspelling. Or another example of a variant is you might have a word repeated two times, and then immediately you see, well, this word is repeated. That's obviously a repetition because all these other manuscripts don't have the word uh, duplicated. Or sometimes a word is left out, so that's pretty obvious. And if you have enough manuscripts, you realize, okay, that was just a word that's left out. Uh, so they're of that nature, 98% of them. So you have to deal with that very small percentage, about 2% that do have some impact on the text. And we have enough manuscripts that we can make those decisions with a high degree of confidence. The basic, most fundamental principle in determining which variant, in other words, you have two documents that you're comparing and one of them is different from the other. Let's say this one word is different and that word will change the meaning. Well, which one do you decide? Or you have many documents that, and you have a a variant. Doesn't necessarily mean that uh, if you have five manuscripts that have a word, that doesn't necessarily mean that that's the right word. In other words, that's a correct reading. It could be the one. It just depends on where all of the criteria line up, uh, us- utilizing the principles, because you might have a very early manuscript that the copyist made a mistake, so that all the other manuscripts after it would be having that same mistake. So you can isolate sometimes. Okay, it's in this copy that is on this particular date. From there on, the manuscripts seem to have that word. So you can isolate. Well, here's where it came from. And these earlier manuscripts might show the different word. So you might be inclined. In that case, everything else being constant, that earlier manuscript would be the the correct reading. But the basic principle is the reading that explains all the other readings is the best, usually the best reading. That's a basic principle. There's some other principles as well, but that's an example of it. If you can explain how the other readings came about as opposed to the reading that you're looking at, then that's probably the better reading. Let me give you a feel for some of the errors that are made. Let's start with the unintentional errors. If there are unintentional errors, what might you expect? What other kinds of errors might you find? Obviously. Yeah, if there are unintentional errors, then there are a whole classification of intentional errors and those you have as well, and I'll talk about them in a moment. But you have unintentional errors like spelling as we've mentioned, but there's a variety You class, you can classify them and they're classified and by the way you can buy books on textual criticism that gives you all this information. Or you can take a whole course. I don't know if it's offered here on uh, textual criticism. It's quite detailed and like I said it's a science so it's a little bit technical. In fact it's quite a bit technical because you have to learn about the manuscripts and you have to learn their, their ages and You have to go through the whole evaluative process. It's a good exercise. In fact, you should be exposed to at least some level of doing some textual criticism. That's beyond the the scope of this course. Well, there are unintentional errors due to faulty eyesight. A lot of the copies were done by a scribe where he would have an old manuscript that was wearing out and needing copying, but it was very uh, trusted and uh, considered very accurate. And now he's copying from this older manuscript, he's creating a a new one that will be utilized. And in copying, he's looking at one column and copying over into a new column, in a a new piece. And in doing that, Sometimes the eyesight plays tricks on you, especially if you're doing it by poor lighting, which a lot of scribes were working under conditions of poor lighting, not always in daytime or not always in a well-lit room. So you have uh, the problem of faulty eyesight. Sometimes they would uh, divide the word in the wrong place in their copying, or like we've said, uh, sometimes the spelling, they would invert the letters Sometimes, and if you're dealing with the Greek language, the uncials, they would use the capitals. So instead of the, the alpha, you have a capital letter. This is an alpha and this is a lambda. And if you're looking at little tiny letters, you can sometimes mix up a lambda with an alpha or vice versa. So that's uh, an error in eyesight in the greek remember i mentioned last time we talked about the difference between a dalet and a resh is just that little projection so those are sometimes mixed up and sometimes those are very easy to detect because this doesn't sometimes this doesn't make sense with a dalet if a, a resh was intended the word just doesn't exist so you can figure it out pretty quickly so those are the types of errors there's also what's called parablepsis, and you can see how that would happen very easily. Parablepsis is where you're copying a line of text. Here you have a line of text, and you have a particular word here, and then your eyesight jumps to another text where you have uh, two lines ending with the same word, or even the same syllable, where you omit one line. So you come on this line and you find a particular word in here and that same word occurs at the end of this line but when you copy instead of copying this line your eyesight jumps to this line and you totally omit copying that line. That's pretty common and it has a specific name parablepsis. So in reconstructing it When you find a series or many manuscripts that includes this line, and even though this word is the same, you can see immediately what happened to the scribe. His eye simply jumped from one line to the next. Can you see that? And I've done that myself, just in copying stuff for myself. An example of that is Luke 10.32. You might compare that. And if you have a study Bible, it might even make a note there Uh, that a certain line is left out. You might study that for yourself. Luke 10.32, where an entire verse is omitted in some manuscripts. And notice that the last word in Luke 10.31 is the same as the last word in Luke 10.32. In fact, in that case, an entire phrase is the same on both lines. And in some of the manuscripts, verse 31 is left out. And what happened is the scribe's eye just jumped to verse 32, omitting verse 31. Now, kind of the alternative to that is sometimes a scribe will copy the same phrase twice. That's called haplography, where the same line is, is duplicated. So those are some of the types of errors that occur. And in some cases, they're easy to detect and will fall under that 98% where there's no issue of uh, difference of meaning. It's just a simple copying problem. There's that slide that I showed you. Some situations of copying occurred in a context where scribes heard someone reading a text and then they would copy. And oftentimes it would be done in a larger room with several scribes copying, where one individual here... Here's the attempt to mass produce, where one individual would read from the older manuscript, and then all the scribes would have fresh parchment where they would be copying from hearing. And now you would have a different kind of mistake that might happen. For example, I give you the illustration in English. The speaker says, great, and this is what he intends for you to copy. But in your hearing, you, you write down great, which is the same. Sound, at least. Yet, there's two different meanings there. And a lot of times, that is very evident as well. Uh, it's an error in hearing. Errors of the mind. Substitutions that the mind sometimes plays. Late in the day, you might not hear clearly, or you might hear something and write something else, because your mind is maybe tired. Sometimes the mind might substitute a a synonym for the word that is actually spoken, variations in the sounds of words or sequence of words, putting words out of sequence, transpositions of letters, we've mentioned that already, those kinds of errors. There are also errors of judgment. These can be unintentional. And then there are actually intentional changes that a scribe might make. A scribe might think in his mind, well, that can't be right. So he revises it and uh, copies what he thinks should be right. And he may be an error. And that could even include some spelling where he thinks he has the correct spelling when in fact he has the wrong spelling. So he may intentionally correct it. There's also evidence of some doctrinal changes that sometimes if it goes against the doctrine of a scribe, he may make some changes to the text there. Those are intentional. Some of those are easy to detect as well because they stick out in terms of the other manuscripts. Or grammatical changes, intentional grammatical changes. Or a scribe might clear up or attempt to clear up a historical or a geographical difficulty. After the science of textual criticism is applied, and this is the bottom line, A.T. Robertson says there are some 8,000 manuscripts of the Latin Vulgate. This is in addition to the over, I think now we have over 6,000 Greek manuscripts, copies of the Greek text. On top of that, there are some 8,000 manuscripts of the Latin Vulgate. In other words, these are translations, and the textual critic can go to these translations as well if they're unclear or if they feel that there's some unresolved issues. They can go to translations, and there are at least a 1,000 for other early versions. Sometimes those are useful. Add to that over 4,000, now 5,000, and this was written a while back. Uh, We're getting close to 6,000 now, 21st century. 6,000 Greek manuscript copies of portions of the New Testament. Besides all this, much of the New Testament can be reproduced from the quotations of the early Christian writers. So you just go to the church fathers and you can almost reproduce the New Testament just from their writings, from their quotations. Now, sometimes they paraphrase exactly but sometimes they uh, from the text itself so we have a, a large number of sources to do textual criticism now this is in contrast to the classics that I mentioned earlier John Warwick Montgomery says the following to be skeptical of the resultant text of the New Testament books is to allow all of classical antiquity to slip into obscurity for no documents of the ancient period are as well attested bibliographically as the New Testament. And I mentioned by magnitudes. So we have a high degree of confidence. F.F. Bruce, a biblical scholar, he says, It is doubtful whether there is any reading in the New Testament which requires it to be conjecturally amended The wealth of attestation is such that the true reading is almost invariably bound to be preserved by at least one of the thousands of witnesses. And what he's saying, even in your UBS text, or if you're using a different uh, Greek text, even if you might disagree with their conclusions... Uh, the original would be contained at least in some of the variants. And you might even disagree with the conclusions of the editors of whatever text you may be using if you consider yourself capable of dealing with textual criticism. And some scholars do. And they can present the evidence. But at least, what Bruce is saying, at least the original would be contained in at least one of the manuscripts. Okay? So we have a very high degree of confidence. So the text is an element of your exegetical process, and the principles of hermeneutics include textual criticism. So you deal with language, and you're dealing with the original language when you're talking about text, the text. What is the text? You want to determine that. Now, in general, if you're not as skilled in textual criticism, you'll generally accept uh, whatever original text that you're using or Greek text or Hebrew text, whether it be the UBS or any of the others. And if you're using the English text alone, then you won't get involved in textual criticism at all except for reading the, the notes of your study Bible. They might give you some other information on there. So that's textual criticism. That's the whole area of the text. It's part of the linguistic principle. Very important, lexicography. We'll spend a lot of time dealing with what is called lexicography. I'm going to teach you how to do your, do your own dictionary, how you can produce your own dictionary of New Testament words. One of the most important areas that you will do in Bible study is word studies. Words themselves, that's the whole area of lexicography. That's part of the linguistic principle. How do you determine meaning? Well, how do we determine meaning today? How do you determine what I mean by a particular word that I may use today? context. Context, yeah. How it's used. Very good. The main determiner is how words are used in a given context. And I will show you how to develop a range of meaning for the words that you are studying. And we will look at Scripture to develop a range of meaning. And let me give you just a very simple illustration that will help you to understand that. Okay, how a word is used, we call that range of meaning, and how that word is used in that particular context that is the determiner of meaning. So how the author uses a word in the context, that determines meaning. And that's what determines meaning as you and I communicate to one another. So it's kind of a universal concept here. But it's interesting that a lot of people violate that and go beyond that. And let me give give you an illustration just from our own understanding from English. What does the word trunk mean? (laughs) Depends on what? Depends on context. What are we talking about? Okay. The word in itself, and this is true of Bible words. Now this is a vivid example because you can visualize it. And this is an example where a word has a very wide range of meaning. And I'm using this circle to kind of illustrate range of meaning of this word trunk. All words have a range of meaning depending on how you are using that word in a given context. And you've already mentioned some of the ways that you're using it. If you have a sentence, before I leave in the morning, I'm going to put my... My suitcase in the trunk. Yeah, you could put a trunk in the trunk. (laughs) I'm going to put my suitcase in the trunk. You know exactly what I'm talking about, right? You have a visual image of an automobile, probably in the back part, unless it's a Volkswagen, where you open the compartment and you put whatever in in the trunk. Well, the word in that context, that one simple sentence, is all you need to determine what you're talking about when you use the word trunk. If you say, we went to the zoo and we the children really enjoyed watching the elephant's trunk pick up things or whatever, even without the word. Trunk, at the zoo, large animal, context, you're talking about something totally different that doesn't even look like this trunk, visually. Or if you're talking about a tree... Uh, the kids were out in the backyard. They climbed the trunk and picked the apples. Okay, you're not thinking of an elephant in that context. You're not thinking of an automobile. That's the way that word can be used, but what determines the usage is how it's used in a context. We do the same thing with Bible words. And a communication trunk. That's another way that you might trunk line of cables communication, or that box-like, maybe suitcase or whatever you want to call it, that's in the attic. You might say something like, I went up in the attic and had to dust off the trunk before I opened it to get whatever I was looking for inside of it. You're not thinking of the other ways that the word is used. You're using that word in a particular way, in a particular context. Make sense? We're going to do the same thing with Bible words, and writers will use the same word, but sometimes they'll use that same word in a different way, in a different context, to convey a different meaning. We just do this normally, and, and from when we communicate, we pick up little clues from what we're saying, the whole sentence or the paragraph that we're communicating, and we pick up that meaning because it's in a particular context. So this is kind of a, a vivid example. You might even think of, you know, six, seven, eight other ways that that word trunk can be used, but here are the most vivid ones that are radically different. Now, again, most words don't have this wide a range of meaning as this particular word. But another example would be the word run, a verb. Here's a noun, the word run. Well, are you talking about somebody's nose running? Are you talking about A woman's nylons running? Are you talking about a marathon runner? See, verbs and words in our language have a range of meaning depending on context, so also all the biblical words. So meaning is determined primarily by usage and by context. Context determines meaning. Now, you might hear Bible teachers use etymology, Now, you want to be careful. Etymology has its limitations. Etymology is the science of the origin and history of words. Sometimes a word and its origin and its etymology can be useful, but be careful. And I'll probably give you some more examples of that later on. I'm just introducing this concept to you here. But etymology can also be uh, dangerous, is probably the best word to use. It can sometimes give you an idea of a meaning of a word that really was not intended by the author. Etymology may be useful when the usage and context are not clear. For example, in the Bible, sometimes there are words that are only used one or two times. And, and if that word is used only one or two times... You can't develop a range of meaning, in other words, a possibility of how that word could be used. So sometimes in those situations, etymology may be useful. And even then, you have to kind of reserve judgment there and realizing that etymology has limitations. Sometimes Bible teachers use etymology and it makes them sound, oh, they're, you know, this is scholarly. Well, be careful with that. Sometimes synonyms are useful. If you can find a synonym, for a word, sometimes that helps as well. But by far, look for how a word is used by an author, what was his intended meaning, and look at the context in which he uses it to determine that meaning. That's your primary area of determination. So there's lexicography. And like I said, we'll, we'll talk about word studies, and I'll give you a whole series of things related to doing word studies and how you determine meaning in that area. Also very important, the main way that language communicates is what's called syntax or grammar. And that's nothing more than how words in a sentence are related to one another. And when we speak of syntax... We need to realize that language, different language, is structured differently. And we'll come back to some of this later as well. We'll have a whole series of lectures in the Bible study methods on evaluating the structure of a passage or the syntax or the grammar. Main area, main area of Bible study. So we'll come back to this. But basically for now, English is structured Different from Greek and Hebrew. English depends highly on word order to give structure and plays an important role in syntax. In general, we put the subject before the verb. Then we have the complement or subject complement after that. Those are your main elements. So the sequence and order in English is important. That's almost the opposite of Greek and Hebrew. Greek and Hebrew, word order is not important. It can play a part in giving emphasis, but in terms of giving meaning, it's not as important as it is in English. Greek and Hebrew is structured more in terms of a couple of other things that I've got on the list here. Greek and Hebrew are what are called highly inflected languages. And we'll talk some more about this later on. I'm just introducing it to you here as a principle. But it's important. Sometimes phonology is important. That's the whole area of language that deals with sounds and the way words are pronounced and those issues relating to the sounds in language. This will come into play not very often... But sometimes you will find what is called play on words that are only evident in the original languages. That's where the sounds come into play. And again, you'll be limited to the English where it won't be evident. But in some cases, this comes into play. Morphology is more important. In other words, these are word endings or suffixes or changes within the root that convey meaning. And every little change conveys a different concept. And when we say that uh, Greek and Hebrew are highly inflected, Greek and Hebrew utilize these slight little changes in the same word, root, that is, to convey different ideas. An example of inflection in English is when we say book. How many books are we talking about? One. If we say books, we inflect it and we include a plural by adding in general an S to the end of a noun. And we're talking about books, we're talking about more than one. That's what inflection is all about. It's not as common in English, but in Greek and Hebrew, in fact, your first year of Greek and Hebrew is spent almost entirely the time learning all of these inflections, all of these Differences because they convey different ideas. It'll convey the tense, it'll convey number, it'll convey gender, it'll convey all of these categories of language that convey different ideas and different meaning. This will come into play even in English, but not so much so as it does in the original languages. Literary devices. Literary devices are how we structure a piece of literature, it's a whole range of areas, literary devices. We'll get into a lot of those as well. So that's your linguistic principle. And like I said, we'll get into it in more detail as we get more into uh, the actual practice. Linguistic principle, any questions on it? And what I just gave you is just just a kind of a broad stroke of the linguistic principle, what it involves. It involves many, many aspects, all of them dealing with all of the issues of language, all of the conventions of language, how language conveys ideas. And the basis for that, obviously, is this is the way that God has chosen to communicate This is the way that God has built into man to convey ideas from his mind to our mind. So language is not this thing that man came up with. It comes from God and it is the vehicle that God has designed to communicate to you and I. That's the linguistic principle. So if you have a problem with with grammar or issues of language like I did in my growing up, In order to better understand the Bible, it's a good idea to sharpen up some of those skills. And most of our problems in interpretation, oftentimes we are inability to understand just the conventions of language, what language is doing, and how language can be used. We have some of the most eloquent, some of the greatest literature that has ever been penned in Scripture. And what is conveyed... It's all conveyed through language. So this linguistic principle is an essential principle that we'll utilize every time that we get into God's Word. Let's go ahead and take a break here.